very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean and Scott Richards ready to take your Bible questions. You know what I just did? What happened? I I think I'll be ready. Uh, I I moved my chair forward, and I hit my funny bone on one of the slats under our desk. And nobody's laughing. Why do they call it a funny bone? That's a deep theological question, but... I digress. <laughs> I think it was the median nerve, which is relevant because that was the same type of nerve that was pierced by the nails when Jesus was put on the cross. Well, I like how you segued that into something actually edifying. <laughs> That's great. Well, back to the intro. <laughs> yeah. If you'd like to send us your Bible questions, again, we are opening the lines for the next hour. Of course, if you'd like to email us your questions, there will be no time limit on that. That will keep things nice and organized for us if you want to send them to us both during and after the broadcast. Also note, if we don't get to your question, it'll be a lot easier rather than having to remember and retype it every time. Send it to our email address and we'll be able to put it on the list, so to speak. That's at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Again, the email address is questions, plural with an S, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. Where you can use that, of course, is limited to when you have a sincere Bible question. And uh, I will try to, I guess hopefully not showcase this too often, but if we get a question that is not about the Bible, since it is being asked not in relevance to the broadcast, you will get an answer not relevant to your question. So we'll look out for that. But that being said, if you want to... I'm glad we've uh, specified our terms and conditions there. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, you want to join us on social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope. If you subscribe to us there and hit the notification bell or whatever it's been updated to by the time you are listening to this broadcast, that will notify you of when we are going live every single weekday. If you're listening locally, it's from 4 to 5 p.m. Arizona time, as opposed to Mountain Standard, because we don't follow daylight savings. If you want to know where that fits into your time zone, just follow us on social media and you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. Same is true for Facebook and like YouTube at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you like us there, you'll be able to engage with us live in the chat box on the right hand of the screen when we are live, or you can send us a private message or in the comment section and we'll be able to add it to our list of questions for the next broadcast. We'll be keeping an eye on that through the broadcast though, so don't hesitate to use that resource. And say you'd rather avoid all of the penguin drama that circulates in social media, you can join us on our website where you don't have to have a YouTube or a Facebook account. Just go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face. You'll have a countdown to our next broadcast live stream or even our bi-weekly Bible studies on Wednesdays and Sundays. If you want to leave us your questions there as well, it'll be on the right-hand side of the screen. We'll look forward to engaging with you there. And as well, if you leave questions for us, you'll have a tab for that available as well. So with all that said, we got a lot to cover, discuss, and uh, hopefully not debate about, but certainly engage with. And since it involves God's Word, why don't we involve Him in the process as well? Pray before we get into it. Let's do it. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to share your Word. We pray it would go forth with clarity, with conviction, and Lord, with the full complement of the fruit of your Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, Lord, in a way that the very character of Jesus is reflected. 
Uh, Father, we realize that it's far beyond our ability to be able to do. Uh, Lord, we pray we wouldn't be reactive, but we respond to any question we come in here filled with your Spirit, committed to your truth, and that people would walk away from uh, this encounter uh, with a deeper and fuller understanding of what you have to say about life, death, the afterlife, and everything in between. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be able to draw close to you during this time. Bless our fellowship in the greatest possible way. Uh, Lord, meet us here and be very, very close and may your spirit be speaking to the hearts of each and every person who joins us on the broadcast. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so what's going on? Well, actually, uh, quite a bit as far as uh, the uh, uh, things going on in Israel. Uh, One of uh, the interesting takes uh, that uh, came out earlier today uh, was uh, President uh, Joe Biden uh, definitely raised some eyebrows by uh, saying that uh, it looks like uh, there's going to be a release of the hostages uh, very soon. Uh, If you were with us earlier uh, this week, we talked uh, a bit about how uh, the— State Department, our official uh, policy about uh, things uh, going on with the uh, Gaza war is that the whole thing needs to wrap up before Ramadan. That seems to be the drum that is uh, beating away. Well, Ramadan is going to start, what, next week, I reckon? Uh, You can do the research on that and uh, know when it kicks off. But Ramadan is the traditional uh, sort of flip-flop of uh, the Muslim calendar. It's called a uh, month of fasting. Uh, but really what happens is instead of eating during daylight hours, you can eat after the sun goes down. So, And in quite unhealthy uh, quantities as well and frequencies. But noting the time of fasting is also dangerous because you're not even allowed to drink water according to the custom borrowed from the pagans. Yeah. So uh, you've got to go 12 hours more or less without water. Yeah, depending uh, on what time of year. Yeah. It's on March 11th, so two weeks. Two weeks. So uh, suffice it to say, that statement was made and raised some eyebrows like, whoa, you know, uh, talk about this uh, confab that had been going on in Paris uh, with uh, members of the Mossad and others from the Netanyahu uh, government uh, meeting there with uh, head honchos from France and the United States and Egypt and uh, Saudi Arabia and so on, uh, and uh, coming up with this uh, great breakthrough as far as uh, potential uh, peace in uh, the, the Gaza Strip. Well, a couple problems with this. Uh, Israel has in no way, shape, or form rescinded their policy that they are going to continue on in their campaign in Gaza until Hamas is completely defeated as a potential military foe for Israel, and the hostages are released. That is their policy. They have not deviated from it. But wait, there's more. Uh, Following uh, President Biden's statement, a senior Hamas official, Osama Hamdan, uh, said this, we stand by our position and we will not retreat from it. First, the cessation of aggression, the end of the siege, and the introduction of aid. Prisoner exchange only later. Uh, leaking details from the Paris document and the number mentioned are a type of propaganda designed to put pressure on us and push us into a state of weakness. The purpose of the Paris document and the Americans is to give Netanyahu more time to prepare for a new attack. The uh, Paris document is an American dictate, and it does not reach what we demand. President Biden practices political hypocrisy, and he participates in the crime of murdering the Palestinian. I'll talk about not being able to please anybody. I um, think, uh, you know, it, it's just amazing 
how uh, even something that really is a non-starter as far as Israel is concerned was a double non-starter as far as uh, the uh, people in Hamas were concerned. So I would expect things to continue apace uh, going into the next week. Uh, speaking of uh, the acceleration of uh, problems in uh, the Middle East, uh, earlier today over 100 rockets were launched from Lebanon into Israel. Uh, the uh, head of the uh, IDF, Yoav Gallant, talked, uh, spoke of this as a major escalation because these rockets were not just in the general area of some uh, military emplacements, but uh, were uh, pretty much marked to whom it may concern, targeting civilians and so on. Uh, our good friend Amir Serfati on his Telegram uh, channel. Uh, I'd highly recommend uh, you follow him on that because he really does a great job of keeping us up to date. Uh, said, uh, the moment of truth is around the corner and even Biden will not be able to stop it. No sovereign country can tolerate such a thing. Gaza is almost gone. Lebanon will be severely crippled as well. Uh, these are the uh, more disconcerting things uh, that we are seeing. But believe it or not, there is good news uh, uh, regarding what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, so much of the attention in our country has been galvanized on uh, the uh, uh, self-immolation of uh, an uh, Air, uh, Air Force airman in front of the uh, Israel embassy. Uh, people asked, how could that guy stand there so calmly while he was burning to death? Well, I have one answer for you, drugs. Uh, if you get yourself um, so loaded on drugs, you won't even feel the fact that you are burning to death at that particular moment. Uh, how interesting, uh, in light of that particular protest and accusing Israel of genocide when it was the Palestinians, the Hamas people, that committed the genocide, uh, 1,700 Jews murdered uh, innocent civilians, uh, I just think it's really interesting that uh, one of the things that we've discovered uh, enabled the Nazis to be so successful in their form of warfare was the friendly folks who give you bare aspirin. Uh, they were a German company, and uh, they perfected something that allowed the Nazis to be able to move their troops without having to give them rest. Uh, we know it today as meth. They literally were methed out. Uh, as they went on the blitzkrieg. Now, the problem that they ran into, and this is pretty much uh, a huge factor in why Nazi Germany's war ambitions failed, is you can only meth people up for so long before the deleterious effects of meth begin to take over. Uh, and uh, so what uh, allowed the German soldiers to be so effective at the beginning really helped uh, spell their demise by the end of the war. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, meth was uh, widely distributed uh, among the German population itself so that they could work double shifts and 48 hours in a row to support the war effort. Uh, Hitler was famously a drug-addled individual, especially by the end of the war. So uh, the bottom line is uh, we saw that. And, you know, when you see things like uh, what went on there and, uh, you know, we uh, basically, uh, you know, come across... Uh, these things we think, oh my goodness, the average person, we're, we're losing the battle for hearts and minds, you know, when we see these kind of demonstrations and the usual suspects in the uh, legacy media play it up and say, oh, you know, we have to have these big uh, 
dramatizations and uh, candlelight visuals in honor of Aaron Bushnell and, and his heroism. I don't think killing yourself in that kind of a way, an act of insanity, is an act of heroism. It makes me kind of want to take a step back and say, what kind of screening mental health-wise are we doing regarding uh, soldiers and uh, people who are participating in armed forces these days? Well, they have a trans brigade and a transgender admiral, so I think that answers the question. Well, there you go. But uh, as far as the good news is concerned, a new Harvard-Harris poll. So this is not like uh, Fox News or something that would come from a right-wing source. But the results are stunning. According to this Harvard-Harris poll, 82% of U.S. citizens express support for Israel, while 18% express support for Hamas. 67% of U.S. citizens indicate they would support a ceasefire only after Hamas is removed and all hostages are released. 63% of respondents support Israel's sovereignty over the West Bank. 78% of respondents support the removal of Hamas from the Gaza Strip. Uh, regarding the future of Gaza, 73% of respondents prefer either Israeli control or governance under new Arab states, uh, as opposed to, say, handing it over to the Palestinian Authority. So it, it does appear if there is a battle for hearts and minds going on, uh, it appears that the average person uh, responding to this Harvard-Harris poll uh, is uh, uh, definitely thinking rightly, uh, or at least biblically, we could say, about what's going on over there. Uh, the only uh, note of caution about the Harvard-Harris poll was that it also indicated that those who identified themselves as Generation Z, among them, 33% support Hamas over Israel which is almost double the uh, total number in the poll. So um, basically, I think what you're seeing are individuals in that category coming out of colleges where, as we mentioned to you before, Marxism and Marxist thought, Marxist analysis of uh, everything going on in the world uh, is uh, the order of the day. Uh, Marxism basically says there's two kinds of people in the world, oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressors are the ones who have greater resources, greater technology, a higher standard of life. Read Israel. The oppressed are the Palestinians, particularly in Gaza. Uh, according to Marxist thought, the oppressors, once you've defined them, can do nothing right, and the oppressed can do nothing wrong. Hence, the uh, massacre of Israeli citizens is uh, rationalized, explained away, uh, saying, well, you know, it was an open-air prison. Well, it was an open-air prison with a five-star hotel. Pretty nice open-air prison, I think. Um, Free electricity and water and everything that their government refuses to provide. And uh, the kibbutzes that were around uh, the uh, barriers of the, the Gaza Strip regularly invited people from Gaza to come and work in their homes and work in their communities at, catch this, four times the going rate of compensation as they would receive if they were in Gaza. What's the difference? The government in Gaza was taking all of the funds, more funds than the United States uh, devoted uh, and its allies devoted uh, under the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe uh, to building terror tunnels and buying weapons and shooting rockets and uh, plotting their uh, goal of exterminating the Jews. That's why you have an economic disaster there. Israel, for their part, supplying them water, supplying them electricity at no cost, uh, gave them uh, at the beginning 
uh, all of these uh, state-of-the-art greenhouses and uh, the ability to be able to uh, uh, engage in commerce and so on. Uh, the Hamas people promptly tore all those down and destroyed them because they didn't want to have anything to do with anything Jewish. So there you go. So uh, the, the bottom line is I think people are seeing through all of this. Um, you know, there's the old saying, uh, when the people lead, the leaders are going to follow. Uh, I think sooner or later, uh, even those in the current administration are going to see this and say, well, uh, we've got these noisy individuals who are saying that you've got to support Hamas. And if you don't, uh, then we're going to cause the whole uh, community of uh, Dearbornistan, as it's known now, uh, either not to turn out and vote or vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I think if I were in uh, President Biden's shoes, I'd take my chances on the other side. Definitely seems a lot more popular point of view to support Israel. So there you go. With that said, going out to your questions now and any further questions you may have on that topic as well are welcome. But... Dealing with the question we received yesterday from, I don't know if I should mention his name, but it is common enough amongst uh, human beings that a, I think... A, an interested individual. If you have any... Hes- this is what I've learned since doing this since 9-11. If I have any hesitation whatsoever about mentioning someone's name, even their first name, uh, because of the subject matter of the question, I always go anonymous. It's an anonymous question. So we'll just call this person Ann for the, for, for the uh, duration. Well, them, yeah, because yeah. an individual separate from them entirely also asked the same deal. So well, I'll great. stop with that. Yeah. Um, the question is how to fight pornography and lust. He's tried to quit, but the desires and struggle are still there. So seems to be a victim of false advertising that if you and the common practice in purity circles is amputate. You get rid of your magazines, uh, you put filters on your computers, you make practical steps to remove these things from your life, then suddenly everything's all peachy and hunky-dory. We wouldn't apply that naturally to any other area of struggling with the flesh. It's not like, okay, I'm going to pray about my anger and then not expect to feel emotions anymore. I'm going to pray about my stealing habits and then never have a sideways glance at the mall. When it comes to any struggle with the flesh. Obviously, people would prefer the easy way out, that when it comes to our relationship with God, there are things he deals with right away, and there's other things that are an ongoing process. So for someone who's in the ongoing process category of things, specifically in this department, which I can go into more detail about specifically, but in any area of sin, when someone has that desire to go back to their sin, a, is that a sign they're no longer saved? B, does that mean that they're not fighting in their relationship with God enough because that, for some reason, is the metric for a godly life? And then C, and most importantly, how do you effectively fight any struggle with the flesh, be it of the eyes of the flesh or the pride of life? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, let me start with this, and then I'll uh, return serve back to you uh, for the next question. If I have a continuing struggle with sin, am I doing it wrong? Uh, That's a huge question in Christian circles, and there's all kinds of uh, potential answers uh, from the legalist who says, well, you're probably not saved in the first place. Uh, I think if you weren't saved in the first place, you wouldn't struggle. I I think that's really what it comes down to. You wouldn't care. Uh, You know, that's not helpful. And then over on the other side, you have people going, well, the reason they continue to struggle with sin is because you're demonized. 
Um, that means lightly possessed, which I've always kind of wondered, is that kind of like being lightly pregnant? Um, you kind of either are or you aren't. Not here. First uh, John chapter uh, 4 and verse 4 says, You are of God, little children, you've overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It doesn't say greater is he that is in you than he that is in you. Uh, there is no passage we find in the entire New Testament, uh, in the epistles, particularly in the practical sections of the epistles. And we see how they break down. They begin with sharing what God has done for us. And then in light of that, how we respond, how we live in light of the truth that we've been reconciled into a right relationship with God. Nowhere do we ever find one commandment, one instruction, one exhortation saying, oh, by the way, if you struggle with habitual sin, cast that demon of lust out of you. That's what you got to do. You got to cast that demon out. It's the demon's fault. Yeah, that's it. And so you have a fall again the following week. You come back to the meeting. You come back to the person who uh, promotes this doctrine and say, oh, I fell again. I guess I got repossessed. <laughs> it's just, wow. Uh, so, you know, you're constantly coming back and you're constantly getting exercised and people say, well, I've experienced it. Well, you know, I've experienced some pretty crazy things uh, when I've had the stomach flu, but I wouldn't build doctrine on it. Uh, so, you know, not to be facetious, not to be harsh about it, but one of the reasons I am a little harsh about it is I see the damage this doctrine does. It undermines our basic uh, security that we have in Christ. It undermines the authority that we have in Christ. It promotes the power of the wicked one to a level that the wicked one does not have. Don't get me wrong. There is a wicked one. He is very deceptive. He's very manipulative. And yet he can only affect us from the outside in not the inside out. And the inside is two-thirds of our struggle. Right. So uh, the first thing I would say is if you have this struggle going on, boy, keep struggling because you're not alone. Yeah, you want to hear a testimony of a guy who struggled in this area? In uh, any area. Struggled with, with the idea of uh, sin that seemingly wouldn't let go of him? Let me read you this, uh, this testimony. We find it, believe it or not, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. There we read this. Uh, uh, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, this I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for the will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man, 
that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. How fascinating that Paul, notice a couple things here. He says, wretched man that I am. The word wretched man there, really interesting in the original language. It was the rough equivalent of, say, a soldier in World War II uh, yelling out, medic. You would yell, wretched man, and they would come and they would give you attention on the battlefield. Uh, So what Paul is saying is, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the next line is, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, with the flesh, the law of sin. So uh, notice, no demons are involved here. What we're talking about is the flesh, that is the fallen sinful nature that we all have, that we were all born with. Uh, when we are born again spiritually, we come alive spiritually in our hearts, in the inward man, if you will. We desire and delight in the law of God, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who don't know Jesus uh, cannot do anything that pleases God. They are spiritually dead. They are dominated by the power of Satan at that point. Uh, we we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, look it up for yourself. But the bottom line is this struggle that we have is going to remain. Paul didn't say, uh, oh, wretched man that I was, but now... I'm living the 100% Christian life, and now I'm happy all the day. Now, what we discover uh, more often than not in our walk with God is that when the Lord comes into our heart, uh, when we invite Jesus into our heart, when we're born again, boy, he starts changing things. And uh, oftentimes you'll hear people sharing testimonies about how much of their life changed uh, immediately after making that decision to receive Christ. And it's a very exciting thing to see some of the biggies like language clearing up or uh, quitting smoking or you know putting away substance abuse or things along this line. Oftentimes, these things uh, are, are dealt with by the Lord very, very quickly. Uh, I, I remember about six months after I became a Christian thinking, boy, if I keep up this uh, level of progress, I'm going to be just like Jesus in a year and a half. But then I discovered something. God was taking care of the weeds, in a sense, the tops of the weeds that stick up out of the ground. But the next phase was this. He was going after the roots, the stuff that maybe isn't so visible, maybe isn't so evident, uh, but he wants to change us roots and all. So, you know, when that happens, there's a struggle there. And quite frankly, you know, if you've ever been in a situation where you find yourself uh, maybe driving home from Bible study and someone cuts you off accidentally and you have all kinds of horrible thoughts about what you'd like to have uh, happen to that person who's driving that way. And you go, I can't believe I just came out of Bible study and I'm, I, I'm just uh, having all this invective and hatred in my mind toward this guy just because he cut me off. Well, welcome to the party, pal, Paul would say. Uh, this is the way life is. And we are going to struggle with the tension, if you will, of living in two ages at once until the Lord comes back. You know, and the Bible talks about our position in Christ positionally, we are already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us this. We are as saved and sanctified and set apart by God as we are ever going to be. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says we are already glorified, past tense. Well, when I rolled out of bed this morning, I can tell you I thought felt a lot of things about myself, but glorified wasn't one of them. Uh, But from God's point of view, because God lives above and beyond time, and because he sees in the spirit, not in the physical that we tend to see in, he already sees us 
home in heaven. He already sees us perfected in Christ. He already sees us without a single thing that he could even chide or correct us for, Colossians tells us. So that's our positional righteousness. Now, our practical righteousness has to catch up with our positional righteousness. God begins to change things, not on a heavenly basis, because we're already home with Christ, but on the horizontal, in the here and now, there's a lot of catching up that has to go on. And that's what we call practical sanctification. That is where the Lord begins to change us and transform us into the character of Christ. And uh, the farther along you go in that process, it's funny, uh, the farther along you go, uh, the more you know you've got far to go. The farther away the destination of being like Jesus really is, because the more you get to know him, the more you get to know yourself, the more you get to know God's word, the more you realize, boy, oh boy, oh boy, uh, I thought uh, when I first became a Christian, this is going to be simple. It's going to be quite a process. So that's the first thing that we have to have under our belt when we struggle with a habitual sin. Um, we're going to struggle. Uh, but the struggling, don't you think, Sean, is the most important part of this whole uh, arrangement. So how can we successfully struggle? How can we not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, as Romans 12 says? Well, as you said, first of all, identify the source of the problem. If the devil made me do it, then nothing I do can change that. If God preordained me to commit these sins and I'm just, you know, reprobate and uh, depraved and there's no saving me, then there's nothing I can do about it. But if I let Scripture be the actual source of information about not only what is and isn't sin, because as a TikTok generation could only come up with, people are even protesting the idea that fornication is a sin, according to the Bible. They would say that that's uh, some legalistic trip, and you can do whatever you want, and it's still good as long as you eventually get married. There will be people who will either redefine terms, there will be people who make excuses, who mm -hmm. say there are worse sins, there are people who say, well, I'm not sinning in this area as much as the next guy, and notice that it's all outward dismissal of responsibility or diminishing of personal responsibility. If we first take responsibility, and this is the first and most important step, we're in alignment with what you were already alluding to, but what 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 states repeatedly, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, the reason why John's making that repetition is the same reason why I started this conversation, giving an example of people who make excuses about it today. It is very common. So when we're put in a situation where we have to own up to the fact we're not all that in a bag of chips, what we did is not what Jesus would have done. And whether it's a loss of temper, whether it's a loss of self-control, whether it's a dishonest action and something that you would rather not own up to because it may even include jail time, or in the most significant and direct way to this, I looked at stuff I shouldn't have on the internet. I treated myself in a way that was not intended to be. Then you have to ultimately own up and say, God, this is not what you would want for me. I'm sorry. That act already on its own is a living miracle, because according to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, we wouldn't care about anything that we did in rebellion against God. It describes us as sons of rebellion, 
sons of perdition, right. literally destined and designed for hell. But God, verse 4, changed the whole formula. So with that formula then in place, what do we do about it? Ongoing confession is key, because as, and, and people have said throughout history, I think Spurgeon uh, did it most eloquently, he said, birds fly, fish swim, Christians repent. Repent, or metanoia, as you were talking about earlier, is a change of mind, literally, to adjust from where we were looking to meet our ultimate satisfaction in that moment, and turning it back to God. And this can be a moment-by-moment action, because remember what Jesus said when Peter came to him and said, how often should I forgive a man the same offense in the same day he was setting up? And he said seven times, and Jesus said not seven, but 70 times seven. Now, is that a calculation that God's patience limits itself to 490 in the same day, so you better cash in? Yeah. No, it's less math, more love. <laughs> no, God's standard for redemption is, did you ask for it? Because we need to understand this as well. Apart from the Holy Spirit, as you stated, we would not care. So what's the point of emphasis in spiritual growth, in not only turning from our sin, but turning back to God? It's not our emotions. It's not our social circumstances or culture that represents or lifts up one sin above another, and you just hope the pendulum swings until you don't have to feel as bad about what you're doing anymore. The answer is coming honestly to God and saying to the little, to the greatest, the least of the greatest, I have sinned. God, can you cleanse me? God, can you forgive me? God, can you restore me? And we have it on his word, not on our emotions, not on our perception, not even in our attitude or perception of ourselves, but ultimately on his word, the same word we're trusting that says, I will never leave you and forsake you, that whoever comes to me, whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved, that authority, we know that we have been restored, that we have the opportunity, as Lamentation says, to receive his mercies anew every morning. And the context of that, by the way, was them being on the receiving end of judgment from God. So I think it applies to sin as well. I think so. Yes. So, oh, here's the point. If you're put in a position where you're saying, you know what, that was gross, that wasn't cool, the first solution isn't to go Genesis 3 style and try and hide it or try to shift the blame. Right. The first model and, yeah. and activity of our fallen sinful nature was she did it, and the, and the woman said he did it, and then the snake didn't have arms so it couldn't point to anyone, and he ended up taking the brunt. The point was what? I'm not responsible. That's the first and greatest obstacle between you and getting over this issue. The second is to understand and recognize that the same long-term solution is also the same short-term solution. If God is the answer to these things in the short term, that if God could take this away, I would be free from it. You believe that? We do too. But if God can do it in the short term, that also means he can do it in the long term. The fact that you haven't received immediate victory is no more proof against it than, for example, the fact that people sometimes die young. Since I haven't died young, that means I'm going to live forever. No, death can apply to you sooner or later. That's the point. So the Holy Spirit can do a work in your life sooner and later. That's our point. So understand that. And then the third and most important thing is seek accountability. Seek fellowship with each other in people at your local church or fellowship. Uh, I recommend betterpleasure.net or runninglight.org where uh, perhaps you can join what we'll be doing today, uh, Pastor Bo Olette, 
hosts a weekly purity group, not just regarding lust and pornography, but certainly including that. I also seek accountability for my struggles with self-harm, and it all centers around the idea of being able to look into men's eyes, or if you're a woman, other women's eyes. And let me just note this as an aside. If you have a mixed group talking about sexual struggle, not helpful, not healthy. If you're planning on starting a purity group at your local church, uh, we do not approve of co-ed. Yeah. That, that, that just doesn't, that's not helpful. But the point then stands going back to what I was about to say. Oh boy. Uh, when you're talking about this <laughs> But I digress. Issue, <laughs> I'm just imagining how awkward that would be and almost amused by it. But anyway, the point of emphasis is just that. If you have the opportunity to look into another man's eyes and say, you know what, I messed up for some reason and I'm, I'm saying that to very tongue-in-cheek, we would take that more emotionally and seriously than we do on a daily basis between us and God. The more you can bridge that gap in realizing I'm experiencing the same kind of tension that I am and having to come to another man and say, yeah, guys, I screwed up this week. Well, you're doing that every day with God, whether you come to him or not, and that's the point. If you can associate that experience and saying, you know what, I want to be able to say I had a good week, that in and of itself is something that is a positive motivation as well. And there is scriptural precedent for it. James 5, uh, 17, I believe, is the most direct. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That whole point in being to build one another up in love and good works, as the author of Hebrews says, that's the whole point of church. And the fact that we can, in fact, interact in these ways is a freedom that we shouldn't take for granted and also should take full advantage of, not just to, you know, kill an hour of our Sunday mornings or if you're really devoted Wednesday evening. Right. The idea is to fellowship, to share the same heart. And if it's a broken heart, then to weep with those who weep just as much as rejoice with those who rejoice. So keep those two things in mind to the two individuals who are asking about this issue. And uh, yeah, feel free to have any further follow through on these things, not go into too much detail, of course, unless you email us, then be as graphic as you want. But the idea of that is built around that hope that God can do the long-term work. The confession is something he's willing to receive from us more times than we can count in a day. And if that's already our working case, then understand the body of Christ is there for a reason too. Yes, absolutely. I, I hope that helps, you know, but uh, welcome to planet Earth. Welcome to life in a fallen world. Welcome to life as a member and one who is affected by this fallenness. But God hasn't left us in our fallenness. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life that we could never live, and willingly laid that life down for you and me on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for your sins and mine so that we could be reconciled to God. And understand this, when Jesus died for you, he understood fully what he was getting into. He fully understood your sins, past, present, and future. And it offers you forgiveness if you'll turn to him in faith, believing in what he has done for you. Have you turned to Jesus? Has there been a time in your life where you made a conscious decision to receive him as your personal savior? If you have not, this is your moment. This is your time. Just take a moment in the privacy of your heart and ask the Lord to forgive you for your sins. Confess to him that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you and rose again, and ask Jesus to come into your heart, to dwell in you, and to make you a brand new person, to make you born again. If you pray that prayer, words don't really matter. It's the attitude of your heart. 
God will meet you there. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So don't miss out on that. That's the first step to really overcoming. Maybe some of the struggles that uh, come our way are God's way of tapping you on the shoulder saying, you know what? You really need a relationship with me. Not church membership, not religion, but a genuine relationship with me. So make sure you've got that settled and uh, look forward to uh, what God is going to do in your life. And um, side question from Taylor, who wants to know, can a husband and wife hold each other accountable on these issues? Be careful with that. You can, because especially when it comes to sexual purity, this is something that directly impacts both of you more immediately than anyone else. But the problem is not everyone is, to use the modern term, built the same way. So if you have, for example, a spouse that's definitely grown in grace, can understand and receive that confession and seek your accountability and restoration with the heart of God, good on them. That's where we all ought to be. But the fact that we all aren't there is no mark against them than the fact a toddler still learning to walk. So if you know that person, and this is true for people that I've been mentored under, uh, they know that they can't confess in the kind of detail they ought to or that they do amongst fellow men that they would with their spouse because it would stumble them. It would discourage them. It would break their hearts. So when they confess to their spouse and they keep each other accountable, they make sure to do it in a way that's sensitive to them and where they're at with God. So just know your partner and the kind of things they can handle and if you do come forward and we have people who are in our church still today who um, have had to confess to outright adultery not even emotional affairs like literally cheating on their spouses and we've seen restoration come from it we've also seen cases where they have legally separated as a result and guess what both were valid but the whole fact of the matter is if you're struggling with this area and you commit to a relationship with that just be and this is true in any issue be sensitive to how much you share with them so that you don't stumble them yeah and i think the word sensitivity really comes in there there's a great scripture that i think can give you a gps heading on what should i share what should i not share Uh, ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers Uh, when uh, I'm thinking about, say, sharing something with my wife, one of the things that crosses my mind is this. Do I need to say everything that just crosses my mind? No. Uh, I need to take a step back and say, okay, how is what I'm sharing going to impact her personally? Now, sometimes that will cause me to be able to share some very personal things because uh, the edification, the building up that's going to go on there is the level of trust in the relationship. Uh, you know, again, it's, uh, it's very interesting how God wants us to have a relationship with him where we can come boldly to the throne of grace. The word boldly literally means to say anything. Well, we can say anything to God because he knows already. But when I'm getting ready to say something, even with my wife, who I feel like I can talk to about just about anything, I have to take a step back and say to myself, okay, is this going to build her up or is this going to tear her down? Is what I'm about to say going to be something that is going to cause her to have a closer walk with God or is it going to be a stumbling block? Is it going to impart grace to the one who hears 
or is it going to cause her to spiral? And, you know, again, I've got to be very careful about my own selfish motivations because sometimes we're like, oh, I just got to get this off my chest. Well, that's me. That's my flesh talking. Uh, you know, again, love, we are told, suffers long and is kind. It does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not seek its own. Uh, in other words, it's not about me. It's about the other person. And so, uh, you know, when we take a look at that, real intimacy doesn't mean I say everything that's on my heart and my mind at any given moment. Real intimacy is saying, you know what, God, you've called me to love my wife like Christ loves the church. What does it mean for me to love her like Christ loves the church in this moment? I just don't have to blurt out everything that's going on in my mind. Uh, I don't have to necessarily confess every stumbling that I've had during a particular day. Uh, but uh, if the Lord prompts, if the Holy Spirit leads, then by all means, you begin to share these things. And as you walk together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, the ability to be able to share more and more with each other uh, grows. But, uh, you know, there, there's, there's sort of a kind of a psychologizing of the faith that says I just have to sort of blurt out everything that is going on or I'm being inauthentic. Uh, I guess it depends how we define authentic. If I define authentic as being true to my relationship with Jesus, uh, listening to him, asking him for wisdom, then great. But if not, um, sometimes uh, we should uh, hold back. Uh, Proverbs, it says, the fool says whatever's on his mind, but the righteous shows restraint. So um, a, a pinch of wisdom there is good. All right. Uh, building on that point, kind of in a more social sense, uh, question again, anonymous, just for the sake of the poor lady involved, but uh, they have a God-fearing Christian girl friend. Notice emphasis on the difference there. Uh, literally a friend, but she views him more than that, and even wants marriage. He likes her, but is not sure he feels the same. Any advice on this? Now, take, taking this back biblically, obviously when we're talking about quote-unquote Christian dating, the best outline for this topic and issue is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where to live is your called. If you are loosed from a wife, do not seek a wife. If you have a wife, do not seek to be loosed, for it is high time to be considered a, well, you get the idea. It was yep. noting a season of persecution, and dark days are on the horizon even today. Right, right. So when we're talking about the ministry of marriage, obviously we're not going to go through all the dating trauma of people and stuff, and, you know, I don't find her attractive. Is that the right motivation, or should I just buck it up and say, well, you know, godliness is enough, so I better marry someone I'm not attracted to, or even someone that I don't like, quote-unquote. Emotions are a terrible metric, but <laughs> they're also that's there. That's really bizarre, but go ahead. <laughs> you get the yeah. idea. You yeah. say it out loud, and you're just yeah. like, man, now I feel weird about myself. Yeah. Yeah. Emotions aren't a good metric for lifelong commitments, but they're also there for a reason. And the idea that you should marry someone because they feel a certain way, that, that's borderline just being manipulated. And if we're going to spare someone's feelings and get into a lifelong ministry that we aren't necessarily being called to, we wouldn't say that your emotions are a metric for a calling from God. And this will tie into another question in a minute. But we also recognize the kind of ministry that marriage is does include our emotions, does yeah. include our perception of yeah. each other. Yeah. So 
as the married man in the room, what were me. yeah what yes. were the sort of things that you would say um, this individual or anyone else should be looking for and saying okay godliness with contentment is great gain but I'm a human being and I have social interactions including with the opposite sex what things should I look for or even maybe wait for in time and yeah. say yeah let me tell you times. two stories from way back when I was single story time and on staff uh, at Calvary uh, Chapel Costa Mesa minor little church that 40,000 people cruise through on a, on a weekly basis. Thing, uh, the funny thing is uh, when you're single and you're on a church staff like that, boy, talk about nature abhors a vacuum. There were all kinds of people that were wanting to set me up with people and with, with good intentions and, and so on. I mean, I didn't begrudge that. Um, but, you know, again, I had some real relational issues that I had to work through in, in my life. And so a um, couple things. First of all, I realized that because I'd been so hurt in relationships in the past, that uh, maybe one of the reasons I was so hurt in relationships in the past is because I never really sought God as far as uh, negotiables and non-negotiables in a relationship with someone, a, a woman that would lead to marriage. And so I really did some, some time praying and studying the Word about all of that, and I, I came up with three non-negotiables that I needed to have if I was going to even consider um, entering into uh, you know, the, uh, anything beyond the friend zone, so to speak. Number one, that person had to have a 100% commitment to following the Lord before I came on the scene. Not following Jesus because I'm following Jesus. They've got to have their own relationship with God. Secondly, they needed to be a person that was really doing some heart work in their life. Uh, they, they were willing to deal with, uh, you know, the real issues of the heart. And God had them in a growth area in their walk with God so that the grace of God was dwelling in them richly. Not a, a superficial religious kind of following of the Lord, uh, but uh, allowing God to really be doing a transforming work that was really, really obvious. And third, the, in my situation, they had to have a 100% commitment uh, to serving the Lord in ministry because that's what God had called me to do. And not every person, right, who uh, sees somebody doing announcements at church, they go, oh, they're so cute, you know. You know. Uh, they're not ready for all of that. I had a pretty good idea of uh, how challenging all that could be. But if that person really was already involved deeply in ministry in the church, apart from me, and uh, understood all of these things, then, then that's great, and understood what the nature of the calling uh, was. So I had to nail that down. I, I remember going to uh, the uh, wedding, dear friend of mine, Rob Verdine, who was the youth pastor at that time. He's now the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Corvallis, Oregon, and they've got an amazing college ministry up there. But uh, I remember going to he and Susie's wedding, uh, his, his wife, and just seeing how much in love they were with each other, and just the glory of God was on them as they exchanged their vows. And I remember going to the uh, reception afterwards, and somebody asked me the traditional question as a single guy at a wedding reception. So, when do you think you're going to get married? And my traditional answer was, well, I suppose when I find the right person. But that day really changed for me, because seeing Rob and Susie, and having been through this time of prayer, I said, well, I suppose when I become the right person, when God makes me the right person, then I'll get married. And, and that really changed my life. So, number one... 
um, you know, have your negotiables and your non-negotiables, not just some vague sort of thing like, oh, I'm just not feeling it, or, you know, the vibe's not there, or things like that, or, or you know, the stuff you'd learn from watching The Bachelor. Have non-negotiables uh, concerning someone you would consider marrying and, uh, you know, proceed accordingly. Uh, the other thing that I would say is this. Uh, when I was on staff there, there were all kinds of matchmakers, and not only matchmakers, there would be women who would come up to me and they would say, well, God has told me that we're supposed to be together. Uh, one of them was like almost 80 years old. And, uh, you know, it was like, yikes. Um, and, and at first I really didn't know what to say to any of that. But then the Lord gave me wisdom. Um, one of these people came up to me and I didn't want to hurt their feelings or blow them out of the water. Uh, but one of these people came up to me, a woman, you know, says, oh, I really feel like God wants us to be together. And I said to her, you know, I, that, that's really a compliment. And, and I really appreciate you saying something like that. But, uh, you know, when I look at Ephesians chapter five, uh, the husband is definitely to be the spiritual leader in the relationship. And I really believe that if God were leading us to something that would lead to marriage, he really would have spoken to me about this first. And they just look at me blankly like, you're going to get like biblical on me? Yeah, I'm going to get biblical on you. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Mac, what I would say is uh, you are called by God to be the spiritual leader in the relationship. Uh, if you do not feel from the Lord that this is to go any further, you just need to, in a gentle way, in a loving way, uh, share that. Just say, you know, I, I've really prayed about it, and I don't feel like that's the direction that God wants us to go. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy your company as a friend, but uh, in light of this, it's probably a good idea for us to sort of stay, step back even from the friend zone uh, at, at that point, just because uh, people's feelings can get hurt. And, you know, just say, you know, I really want to pray for you because, you know, obviously God's put this desire in your heart, and I'm going to pray that God brings that right person and makes you that right person, and uh, I'm going to continue to pursue God's will for my life. And, and I think if you have those two things in mind, Mac, uh, you're not going to go too far wrong. We don't want to set people up or lead them on, obviously, uh, but we want to follow Jesus. We want to be led by the Spirit. And so if the Spirit leads you and guides you, you know, to me, I, you know, I've got 30 years of uh, mileage uh, to uh, prove that this principle works. Um, you know, my wife and I, Pam, uh, I can't think of a more perfect match for me. I can't think of anybody that I enjoy spending more time with. Uh, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing to fall more in love with somebody more and more all the time because we followed those biblical principles. So follow those biblical principles. You're going to be fine. All right. Another question from, let's do it from Mary, because we've actually received that live here, and it can be dealt with, I think, in two minutes. How do you respond to Christians that claim the Bible teaches a flat earth? So they claim the Bible as an authority, but noted as an authority over modern cosmology, and say, well, you're not taking the scriptures plainly when it says that, uh, you know, in Isaiah 40, for example, that uh, God established the circle of the earth and so forth, the firmament being stretched out. It doesn't say coned over and all that shenaniganry. When it comes to the issue of flat earth, let me start with the positives. They are coming from, and I say positives loosely, they're coming from a position where they've been lied to 
by people who are in the quote-unquote realm of the scienceosphere. And so any position that's accepted in popular culture would in of itself be under the category of just propaganda by those liars. And therefore, there's a virtue in just going against the grain and saying that I don't believe what the mainstream believes. I'm the I'm the hipster scientist here. I'm taking the uh, the underground right. movements and stuff. There's no virtue in being reactionary, and that's just carte blanche. But if, on the other hand, they're taking this so fixatingly that the topic of the earth is the ground they're willing to die on, and I say that pun intended, we're talking about someone who's going to spend more time, more passion, more dedication of their lives to establishing this view of cosmology, and, and let's just not even grant the point for or against it, than they would at the expense of spiritual growth, of the gospel, and even sound doctrine and understanding what God's actually revealed himself to be. Why? Because their ministry and their calling centered around debunking the, this spherical earth. Well, when it ultimately comes down to it, you can walk them through the passages they present as proof text all you want, they're just going to say that you're under the category of liars because you say the same thing. They may not put it that way, but that's the point. If they are in the mindset where they are blindly trusting the flat earth position at the expense of us blindly believing the modern pop culture, it's just one mistake against another. Challenge the assumption that was would this really even matter, I think is the point, and yeah. then just leave them alone because it's not a position grounded in facts or science, it's a social movement. And when it says the four corners of the earth, that no more teaches a flat earth than saying sunrise means the sun actually revolves around the earth. So there you go. Heliocentrism debunked. God yeah. bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.